the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hi, it's Hugh Hewitt. Welcome to the interview with Hugh Hewitt, sponsored by AndrewandTodd.com. Andrew and Todd are with Sierra Pacific Mortgage. They help you with all your real estate lending needs. If you're refinancing your home, if you're buying a new home, if you're a senior who wants a reverse mortgage, if you're a veteran who doesn't want to put any money down, whatever it is, if you're in the private real estate market for yourself, and maybe you want an investment property, try AndrewandTodd.com or call 888 now on to the interview with Hugh Hewitt. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. The interview with Hugh Hewitt today is with David Brooks, New York Times columnist, best-selling author, PBS contributor. David, welcome back. Good to talk to you as always. Good to be with you. I have uh, enjoyed your new column, The American Renaissance Has Begun. I want to talk with you about it, but emphasize at the beginning Though you are focused on silver linings in the pandemic, you do not downplay at all the incredible suffering that has occurred, the loss that is widespread, and the fact that it continues to go on around the world and indeed in America again as the Delta variant spreads. Uh, that's for sure. 600,000 American deaths are not nothing to be sneezed at, but we can't only look at the bad news. Occasionally, when things begin to turn around, it's time to acknowledge a little good news. Let's begin with the first thing, which I did not know until I read your column. An, entre an entrepreneurial burst has occurred in the United States. 4.4 million new businesses were begun in 2020. You say, quote, by far a modern record. Now, some of that might have been necessity, but a lot of that is simply opportunity to move in a period where you had to move. Yeah, there were two long-term trends about America that were disturbing to me and mostly because I think America's key resource is the energy of its people. And there was some evidence that energy was, that dynamism was going down. And those were in two stats. One, startups, uh, the number of new entrepreneurial businesses has been declining for a good number of years. And two, actual mobility, people moving to new places in search of new opportunities. And both those stats turned around in 2020. And some of it, as you say, was necessity, but some of it is both. That people think, okay, I've lost my job. Here's my chance to do the company I've always wanted to do. And so a lot of that is happening. And so, you know, it's just tremendously good news when you have 4.4 million entrepreneurs out there trying to create jobs and businesses. In every disintermediation, there is always opportunity. As I was reading your column, I thought about the massive return of service people, mostly men, from the war in 1945-46, my father among them, my uncles among them. They all came back to an America that had shortages everywhere and had everyone working, a full employment economy. But the country changed radically in five years as a result of first the war and then the disintermediation of the return, which is not unlike the great dispersion underway now. Right. And one of the things they do is they created new towns. So they, they, they moved to suburbs. That was the big expansion of the first uh, urban uh, inner ring suburbs. And what's happening now is a similar dispersion. People are leaving, as they had been in the years before COVID, they're leaving big cities like New York, San Francisco, L.A., Chicago, and they're either going to small cities like Wichita or Greenville, South Carolina, 
or they're going to rural places. Uh, I was struck by this the per capita, the number two state in attracting population this year is Idaho. Uh, and so people want to go out where they can have neighbors, where they can have some space, and where some of the costs of, of urban life are away from them. The exurbanite uh, dynamic is particularly pronounced when the states to which the immigrants are moving are proximate to highly regulated, high-tax states. And, David, this isn't a digression in denouncing democratic rule. There are reasons why California is high-tax and people play, pay for their geography tax. But California is definitely losing talent. It's an entrepreneurial drain of extraordinary breadth and depth and of income. Can that not escape the notice of policymakers? Do you think they will have to change how they make policy in response to that outflow? Well, you would think so, especially the mayors of places like San Francisco, where you have extremely high costs, uh, high homelessness, high crime, bad education. Uh, and it's just becoming a place where people want to leave and they want to go to Austin, Texas, or they want to go to Houston, Texas, or they want to go to Waco, Texas. Uh, and so will the blue model of governing change? Uh, you would think so. I think we're seeing the big first hint of that, frankly, in the results last night of the New York elect mayoral race, where crime is suddenly in New York. A progressive city. Crime is the number one issue because crime is really rising fast. And, you know, I lived in New York in the 80s when crime was really high, and it pushed people to want to elect Rudy Giuliani, another Republican mayor. So the polity does respond. The only time I lived in New York was 1980, and I didn't enjoy it at all, and I left. And I think the bad old days are back. But I'm surprised that you would even venture a guess as to who the winner is. The reports this morning tells me we'll have to wait until July 12th to find out who's in the runoff. Yeah, that's for sure. So I'm not saying I know who will win, but I do know that crime was the major issue. Ah. And if crime is the issue in New York, then I suspect it'll be a major issue in Minneapolis. And San Francisco. I agree. I agree. Let me as well. Uh, we'll come back to homeless in a moment. I want to go back to the column, a second upside or silver lining of the pandemic. People have been reminded that, quote, life is short. Would you expand on what you mean by that, David? Yeah, people had sort of an existential crisis. Why am I here? What do I enjoy doing? I certainly had this. Like, I got to have dinner with, you know, the family every night for a long time and found I really enjoyed that. And sometimes jobs make that impossible. We've got ships or whatever. But I certainly want to prioritize that. I do not want to go back to the frenetic life I used to have. And I think that's why a lot of people are, really want to cut back on commuting time and all the rest. So what kind of changes did David Brooks make as, re- as a consequence of the shutdown? You know, one of the things we do is my wife and I, and we sit there with our calendar for, uh, and in three-month chunks and say, are we really allocating our time in accord with our values? St. Augustine, the hero of mine, said we all love a lot of things. But the question I would ask is, do your, does your calendar match your loves? Like rank the things you love the most in the world. Is your calendar reflective? Are you spending time on those things and less time on things that are maybe a little lower down the ranking of your loves? And and does that accord? Did you shift? Yeah, we've uh, we've shifted, and when we have to travel, we're going to try to travel together. Uh, we, I mean, we just you know, my wife and I got to spend a year and a half together, and found we it was fantastic. <laughs> I mean, of all the downside of COVID, being you know with people you love is is been great with my kids too, and. Just want to keep that front and center. One of the things we noticed on Team Hewitt was that my wife's family, for the first time of our 39 years of marriage, weekly checked in with each other via Zoom for an hour. Now, it didn't include the in-laws. Uh, you know, I would 
way from the background, but they talked to their siblings more than they had in 39 years that I've been married, and they loved it, David Brooks. This goes to your theory that very tight bonds were strengthened, but the downside is those who were alone got very much lonelier. For sure. And if you were like 22, you just moved to a town where you were just settling, hadn't really made the friendships, it was horrific. Uh, and But it's still a reminder of the power of, of those connections. So I, I do think we've become... We were driven apart by the disease, no question. I, I was hoping a year and a half ago we'd all come together and fight this thing together. That did not happen. But but the loneliness that rose, uh, you know, and this may be the point of the column. People react. People people are innovative and know how to solve their problems. And so we were prevented from solving our problems because COVID had power over us. Now COVID has a little less power and we have more power. And so we have power to figure out, well, what's the problem here? And to try to just have great faith in the power of the innovative abilities of normal people. You know, David, COVID was a meteor strike on routine. Everybody's routine was displaced. In some places, it disintegrated, of course, the worst for those who lost a loved one or who themselves died. But when you do that, all sorts of things happen, including, I was talking to a client, a sponsor of the radio show, big New York company, who had to abandon the subway and bought a car and experience Manhattan by car for the first time. Now, I don't think Manhattan can actually permanently move to a car city, given the traffic grid and parking shortages, but it might in, it might turn everyone into a different kind of commuter and therefore introduce completely different consumption of news. There are lots of da- – you're, you're the first person to spot. They will be talking. Everyone will be talking. Sociologists like you will be studying everything that happened after that meteor strike. Right, for sure. And and some of it is about where we live. Um, some of it is who we live with. And some of it is like, I'm not getting back on that rat race. And and every after every big episode, people tell a story about it. So after like World War II, people told the story, the ruling could be screwed up and they, we can't we can't have faith in those Victorian values anymore. And so we had a lost generation. After World War II, they told the story, you know, this society basically works. We beat back the Nazis. And so there was a period of high trust and high cooperation. After the 60s, people told the story, the political establishment is messed up. I'm going to get in touch with my private life. So in the 70s, you had like Esalen and Est and the New Age movement. People rejected politics and got in touch with their private life. So after every disruptive event, people tell a story. And frankly, I don't know what story we're going to tell about the last two years. Either we came together or... It was a time we all got disgusted with each other. I don't know. Uh, David Brooks, do you think it might be one of my theories? Is that that's not one event? We are in a 20-year period of three crises. 9-11, which was traumatic. 2008, which was another trauma. And now COVID, which is a third trauma. Uh, post-traumatic stress is obviously a part of the battlefield continuum. But it can be for a country as a whole as well. It might produce chronic political conflict and will come there, but it also might wholly change the character of a people, or do you think that's too alarmist? No, it could, and I'm glad to see the entrepreneurship up because it's, it reminds us that we are who we've always been. But, you know, we've had 20 years of a failure of a certain sort of order I prized. I, I you know, came of age when America won the Cold War and, and the liberal global democratic capitalism I thought was was the right way to go, and I still basically think that. But we had 9-11, we had the Iraq War, we had the financial crisis, we had the whole Trump-Michigas, whatever you think of that. Um, we've had a lot of disruption of that order. 
And we've got to figure out what the – is the problem liberal democratic capitalism? I don't think so. But what is the problem? And so you, you have to ask yourself fundamental questions. And to me, one of the big problems, one of the ancient problems is we're still bedeviled by race. One of the big problems is we now have a highly educated class in coastal cities who are sort of trying to control all of American society and the rest of society doesn't like it. The biggest uh, so problem of all, big the biggest problem of all, you did not remark upon it, though you said there was a great uptick in parents liking their kids. And I agree with that. I heard a lot of that from people. It's in your column. Spending dinner time with your kids is a great thing. But the birth rate fell, David. Uh, that was a surprise. The birth rate ought to have gone up like the great blackout of New York, but it didn't. To what do you attribute that? Yeah, the, I, I think the birth rate, A, is people are not making families. They're not getting married. B, uh, a, lot of pe- a lot of women feel they can't find men to marry uh, who are making a decent, stable income. And C, just generalized optimism. Uh, people uh, just have, when people have less faith in the future, they have fewer kids. And then I guess finally, it's when people want to go out to dinner more than they want to look after a kid. <laughs> they want the pleasures of a certain kind of life. So I think all those things are, are feeding into the declining birth rate as they have in Europe, and we seem to be following them a, a few decades later. Does that ever, does the messaging about the joy of family, which is a postponed gain, right? The first three years are incredibly difficult and time-consuming for a child. It begins to ease up until finally, when you're my age, and I imagine your children are uh, are launched as well, you get to enjoy the benefits of all that labor. I mean, it's genuinely great fun to spend time with adult children. It's really one of the great blessings of life. But it's a very much postponed uh, ben- benefit. You don't see it. You, you just have to be told it. Do you think that the pandemic increases or decreases the likelihood that that messaging gets through? I think it increases. I've never met anybody who had children and regretted it. Um, and for me, it was age four. And I needed to be infantilized. So once I had kids who were three or four who just wanted to have fun all day, I was totally down for that. So yes. I had huge, <laughs> huge benefits when they were four. With the absence of T-ball, can we make an exception <laughs> that T-ball is not a great benefit and ought to be banned? I, but no. <laughs> I even love T-ball. Oh, my gosh, David. You are indiscriminate in your joy of children. Um, you cite Henry Van Dyke. I don't know Henry Van Dyke, but I know Tocqueville. And they share the same point of view that the great American ingredient is energy. And Hamilton, too, did, too, as to the government. Energy and the executive being the defining quality in, in Federalist 78 of a successful regime. How long does that energy burst last that you discuss? It, it used to be a permanent condition, and I think it was a permanent condition we, because we were both an extremely religious country and an extremely materialistic country. And the tension between those two desires just fueled us. And it sort of waned a little, but I think that was temporary. I, I, I think American energy, the immigrant ethos, hustling to get it done. You know, we, we work way longer hours than almost any other country on earth. We take shorter vacations. We marry and divorce more. All the good things and all the bad things. Um, we just do more of it. Uh, and I, I think that's the essential spiritual drive that's still at the core of the country. Now, David, I want to talk about one. I'm going to transition to the downsides now that are not in your column. But there's one that is both an upside and a downside. The Chinese Communist Party is revealed. And in a way that a thousand speeches on the Senate floor and a dozen political campaigns could not have accomplished. The nature of the regime is on display. Good thing, bad thing, and will we deal with what we now know? 
Yeah, I guess I'm struck by how much bipartisanship there is about China these days. Um, there was a sense that you couldn't, shouldn't be too hawkish because, well, maybe we could work with these people. That really has not been borne out by the evidence. So I find Democrats and Republicans are pretty hawkish and pretty suspicious of China, and the effect that'll have over the next years, I don't know, but it's already gotten them to work a little together to create a better industrial policy so they can fight off their technology. But I, I think all of America is sort of waking up gradually over the last seven years to what's out there. Now, when did the change occur? I'm president of the Nixon Foundation. We are planning the 50th anniversary of President Nixon's famous opening to China trip, which occurs early next year. But many people have said the change came when Bill Clinton admitted China to the WTO. Many people believe the change exists when President Xi becomes the president. What do you do? You see a change, or were we simply uh, rose-colored glasses about the nature of the regime throughout these fifty years? Uh, it could have been rose-colored. I mean, we all assumed that as they became Demo- as they became capitalists, they would become democratic. Not we all, yes. but a lot of people assumed that, and that turned out to be bogus. And I think Xi is the epitome of of the authoritarianism going with a kind of raw capitalism. And I'd say partly it was just when you spoke to American businessmen who were doing work over there and businesswomen, for a while they were excited, and then they were like, this is horrible. <laughs> I mean, these people are stealing everything. Uh, and so you saw that shift. Then you saw the Uyghurs. You saw Hong Kong. Uh, it's been an accumulation of revelations. And that requires a response, a Cold War-like response when it comes to American armament. Do we have the will to do that? Because certainly... You cannot confront a superpower that is launching 20 ships a year by launching eight. You can't. It it will be overwhelming to deal with a uh, CCP that is intent on having a blue water navy on every ocean and a port in every continent. I mean, even in, you know, I'm a young boomer, uh, grew up in the Cold War where and was raised by a generation that was used to heading off adversaries, whether it was the Nazis or the Germans, the Japanese, whatever. And maybe now we have a generation that's been raised without too many adversaries, except for maybe um, Islamic terrorism. But suddenly there's a big global adversary. It's the way we haven't seen since 1991. Um, will they see the adversary and see what needs to be done or even believe in the military means to, to contain it? I, I frankly don't know the answer to that question. It's a very interesting question, though. Uh, neither do I, but I hope it is uh, an awakening to peril. Let me now talk about uh, the Great Dispersion. That's what I called it with your colleague, Ross Douthat, last week. You referred to Joel Kotkin, a colleague of mine at Chapman University's study of where Americans went over the last year and a half. There's a downside. There's a great upside to that. You talk about perhaps it will knit uh, communities together. And, and first, let's talk about the good side. When you take a lot of people and move them around, the country has to get used to new neighbors, and that's a good thing. For sure. And we have been too segregated. So you get young college grads going to a few cities, a few superstar cities, and jacking up the wealth created there and leaving everyone else behind. And so we've become too concentrated over the last 15 years. So to me, dispersion is a good thing. It's also a good thing because immigrants are dispersing and more people will live in more diverse communities. I think that we'll all get along once we actually get to know each other. Um, so those are two positive effects. Now, the bad side is housing prices. Just today, it was revealed actually yesterday and reported today, year over year, housing prices on average in the United States increased 23.8%. 
Now, that means the first rung on the housing ladder, which is the greatest engine of wealth creation in the history of man, housing equity, has gotten much further out of reach. And I see no one talking about this and in the political sphere. It's as though they are unaware that young families cannot get to that first rung. Is that an existential problem for a country? Because we have always had the, quote, American dream, which is own your own home. Is it fading, David? Yeah, well, it's fading for, and it's one of the reasons why people are not having kids, because they're living in some little apartment. You know, I think it's a, it's just a short hiccup of supply, I hope, uh, though there are a lot of zoning regulations. But basically, the millennials had held off having housing. I think they were reminded how much they want to settle down and have a stable life. So they decided, let's buy a home. Uh, and so everyone came out at once and I have a lot of adult friends who are looking at their Zillow estimates, not because they're going to sell their house. They just like because it's gone up like 20 or 30 percent. Um, but it, it's obviously a stranglehold on those who don't yet have housing. And the question will be, can we loosen zoning rules in enough places so you can actually build uh, a lot of new housing? You know, the Zillow estimate observation, David, that's very interesting. It's a source of comfort in an age of economic anxiety to believe that you have a nest egg beneath your feet, even if you're not going to dip into it. It's, it's actually got to be measurable somehow. Sure, for sure. I, be, I bet it affects how people spend and save, how they think about their retirement, for sure. I mean, it is, in theory, real wealth someday if you ever sell. Yeah, or, or for your children. But the Congress is debating the ending stepped-up basis, which will be a revolution in the United States if they do. Another, another topic for another time. I want to get to the bad news. The worst news, science is politicized. And I don't think we can deny it, and we can talk about why it happened. But what do we do about it, David Brooks? Yeah, well, that, that's up to the, the good scientists to, like, stand up for themselves. And this has been a hot period where a lot of people are laying low because they don't want to get canceled or whatever. Um, I hope that eventually, like, there, there becomes an intolerance of ideological science. Uh, and But I don't know. I mean, it, it takes a lot of courage to be the person who's, standing up against an, an ideological tribe and, and um, saying, no, actually, it's a little more complicated than that. Um, yeah, that, that's just a matter of personal courage for a lot of people. Do you generally attribute good faith to people when they speak? I do. And so my theory of Dr. Fauci and others who've come under hailstorms of criticism is that scientists react to new data. New data means they change their public opinion. If you're a scientist with a public platform from whom answers are demanded, you will have to change your view, and we ought to attribute good faith to them. But that is not the way of the news or of politics in America. Can that be changed back? Yeah, I, I almost always assume good faith. I always assume when something screws up, it's usually because people are incompetent, not because they're evil. Uh, and that, that's been just my experience of covering politics at a high level for 30 years. And, you know, so for Fauci, I mean, things like the masks, we, we learn stuff over the course of this. And then he has been tarred with things which are radically untrue, just wild conspiracy theories that the NIH was funding the lab and move on and all that kind of stuff. And so a lot of the things you hear that are negative are just made up. And so, you know, it's it's easy to blame Fauci, but he's also a normal human being who's been hit by a lot of conspiracy theories. And I can't imagine that feels good. I do have to note that gain-of-function research was a re-grant from NIH about which candor would have been better. I think it's going to teach the public sector scientists to be candid about everything immediately in order to avoid politicization. David, the worst thing I see, and it's cop, it's, it's especially covered in a city journal piece 
on post-journalism is that the news is broken. And cable news ratings are plummeting. Uh, network news ratings have already fallen off of a cliff. And I, I think Yamich is your friend. She's my friend as well. So I'm going to use a clip of her yesterday on with Nicole Wallace, whose show has fallen into a crater from which I don't know what it will ever emerge of ratings, just to illustrate the point, because she's a PBS person. You and I are both veteran PBS people. Here's Yamich yesterday talking about the election reform bill, cut number one. We're going to enter into that debate, and we're also going to enter into what is American democracy and who should have access to it. This is fundamentally going to be a debate cast in the in talking to activists and talking to White House officials. This is going to be a debate about what whether or not we want America to be the place that the founders, um, flawed as they may have been, the founders wanted it to be, which is a place where people could vote and people could have access to who were the elected officials. Um, when I talk to uh, activists and civil rights leaders, they tell me that not only, of course, are they going to continue to put pressure on lawmakers to, to put in um, bills and to try to push back on this filibuster issue and to try to get the For the People Act passed. I've been talking to officials who say two other things really need to happen. The first is that the DOJ needs to start taking action to try to figure out whether or not there are ways to stop these state legislatures and these states from trying to take away voting access from Americans. The second thing they tell me um, is that they want to mm -hmm. see now President Biden accelerate um, nominating judges because they see that as the first line of defense against a lot of these laws. So we're entering a phase now that, of course, is going to be about this procedural rule. President Biden has called it at one point a relic of Jim Crow. Um, but we're also going to really enter into, into this post one six world where we really have to ask ourselves whether or not democracy will be protected. Uh, David Brooks, in that minute and a half, Yamich is decidedly of one point of view on the news. Is that good for the news? She's very smart. She's a colleague. I appear with her on Meet the Press, as you do. But she is representative of this post-journalism that City Journal talks about. What does that mean for the business? Yeah, well, first, to utter candidness, you know, Yamich is a colleague of mine on the news hour. There's never going to be a second of daylight between me and Yamish. Uh, and I would say, just objectively, she was reporting. Uh, she talked to Biden administration officials. She talked to uh, uh, activists and civil rights advocates, as she said. And she more or less reported on what they told her. So it's useful for us to know what, what they're thinking and how they're framing the issue. And so and I thought she was being a reporter there. Within the reporting, there was a statement of fact about what Republicans are doing at the state level, which was manifestly opinion. And that is where I think the news business, that's why I used it, because Yamich does combine reporting and elegantly inserts an opinion into it. And you won't get any daylight with me about her capability or competence. She's a colleague as well. But I just think that everywhere in the news, people have become like me on the radio. Their opinions are merged with their factual, and we are products of the bubbles in which we live. I talk to Republicans all day, every day at the National Republican Senatorial Committee, at the Republican Governors Association, at the Republican Study Committee. I'm just a Republican, and my point of view reflects that. Is that useful, good, or ought we to have a new place to turn where it's just the facts? Well, you know, obviously I, I, I came of age of a certain type of press score, and I believe in that press score where you can go to that place and say, well, that's pretty straight. If you read it here, it's not because they're making it up. Uh, and I would say um, one of the things I'm weirdly a conservative guy, mostly in progressive circles. And one of the advantages that this posture has is that I see there are all these crazy things that happen in Alaska and schools that cancel people, this and that. But in my daily experience, I see a lot more diversity. 
And so I see a lot of crazy canceling and the left going insane in some ways. But then I see a lot of mostly normal people who are also on the left. And so I'm not as bugged out by some of the crazy examples of somebody getting canceled over a bad tweet because I see a lot of reasonableness. So I, I hope this experience gives me a little more texture on the left. And I hope if people had diverse friendships, it would give them a lot more texture about what's going on on the right. You know, David, uh, I agree with that as to our there. generation. My very best friends in the world are Bill Clinton's deputy chief of staff and Obama's deputy secretary of energy. They're college roommates, and I've, they've been my friends for 45 years. I think generationally, you and I are different from the young progressives of today who may be far more isolated in their experience of friendship and politics than you and I might have been. True or false? True. There's definitely more geographic segregation and more educational segregation. And and going to a school where their tuition is over $50,000 a year, you're going to be in a very progressive, segregated place. That's a tragedy. That, that, that is a, an ominous development. A couple of last questions. Is the polarization more, less, or about the same as we see the polarization on Twitter? Way less. I mean, yes. I'm, before COVID, I was really out in three states a week with normal people, and it was nothing like Twitter. It was 100% not the same topics, not the same attitudes, not the same viciousness. Uh, it was just a, a different universe, uh, the universe of the real. Well, that brings up big tech. Six bills were introduced yesterday in the House Judiciary Committee. I talked about big tech with the Republican Study Committee last week. Um, is it a problem? Is it an existential threat to how we live? Is the nudge theory of big tech's access to our lives and our information genuinely a threat that accelerated because of our reliance on it during the pandemic? Or is it overstated? Yeah, I go back and forth. I mean, some of the things that tech has done to the news industry, some of the things they've done to our elections strike me as pretty reprehensible. Uh, some of the, I guess the thing I focus on is teenage suicide, and especially for young girls who are on TikTok or whatever, or Instagram, the suicide rates seem to be going up because there's judgment everywhere and understanding nowhere. And so I'm not sure, you know, I'm not an expert to blame the companies. I guess I blame the, u the users. Um, for, you know, creating an atmosphere of viciousness and, and you know, I guess tech uh, profits from that. But let's not excuse the people who are actually using Instagram to make others feel bad. Uh, have you read The Age of Surveillance Capitalism yet? Yeah, I have. I read what do you, did you find it as ominous as I did? I guess I, um, and the more you read people who are familiar with the industry, the more you realize it's an addiction machine. Um, and you certainly um, get the defectors from the industry who are appalled about what's going on. Well, it's just an accumulation of data that I don't want my children or grandchildren to be burdened with. It's PRC on sort of a skinny PRC that is developing. Last area, and it's got nothing to do with anything, but Ross Douthat and I talked about it two weeks ago, so I wanted to test my theory. Are you a reader of fantasy epics? Have you ever been? A little, but uh, not, a, not a big time. No, I'm sorry. Uh, no, okay. Ross and I had a conversation about this, so I'm looking for a third. I know Crystal Liz is as well, but I'll find it somewhere else. David Brooks, thank you for a terrific uh, conversation and a great column. I look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you, David. Always a pleasure. You see you. That concludes today's episode of the interview with Hugh Hewitt. Thank you for listening. Make sure you come back and check out all the other podcasts on the Salem Podcast Network. 
And remember to thank our sponsors, andrewandtodd.com. If you believe in long-form interviews like I do, then do your real estate transactions with Andrew Del Rey and Todd Avakian. I've known both men for a long time. andrewandtodd.com. Go there, answer a couple of questions. They'll tell you what's best to do with your house or call them at 888-888-1172. You'll be glad you did and you'll be glad that you listened to the next episode of The Interview.